Hello and welcome to this latest podcast from the Herbert Smith Free Hills Pensions team. My name's Tim Smith, a professional support consultant in the team, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Antonio Pegden. He's a senior associate in our disputes team, whose specialisms include advising on pension disputes. Antonio, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Very good to be speaking about this new case. Today's podcast is the first in a new series of podcasts on pension disputes, in which we will be discussing the implications of significant pensions cases, examining the practical impact of procedural changes, and exploring emerging risk areas for pension scheme trustees, sponsors, and professional advisors. In this podcast, we're going to kick off this new series by discussing the implications of the recent High Court decision in a case involving the Mitchells and Butler's pension plan. So, Antonio, could you begin by explaining the background to this decision and, and why it's significant? Sure. So the case concerned the claim for rectification of three successive deeds, a 1906 deed, a 2002 deed and a 2006 deed. And it concerned rectification of the pension increase rules in those deeds. And very broadly, what occurred is originally those pension increase rules uh, allowed the trustees to select the applicable index to calculate pension increases. And having instructed their legal advisors to prepare a consolidated trustee and rules in 1996, an error was made in the redrafting of those rules. And erroneously, a change was introduced, which removed the trustees' power to select an alternative index to RPI and introduced a power for the principal employer to alter the default pension increase of RPI up to 5%. So that broadly was the error that occurred. And the trustees were looking to rectify, as I say, three successive these which carried through the original error. So the primary issue considered was, was rectification, and that was granted by the judge. And importantly, he applied the decisions in IBM as in particular how rectification should be applied to successive deeds. But interestingly, the principal employer introduced quite a novel argument that we haven't seen in rectification cases previously, which was a bona fide purchaser defence. And broadly, what that meant is they argued that when Mitchells and Butler became principal employer of the plan in 2003, it did so as bona fide purchaser for value without notice of, and thus free from any equitable claim for rectification in respect of the 96 and 2002 deeds. This was a new argument that we, we haven't seen before in rectification cases. The judge rejected it, but it's certainly interesting to see that it has been raised and, and could be raised in further cases again. You mentioned that that's a kind of new argument that we've not seen before in this context. What, why did the courts reject it? Well, um, they did so for um, a couple of reasons, some of which are tied to the particular scheme rules, but which I think will be applicable more widely. First of all, the judge said, well, when Mitchells and Butler assumed the rights and powers of the principal employer under the 2002 deed, that didn't amount to a purchase of an interest in property. Rather, Mitchells and Butler was, as I say, I use that language, assuming the position of the principal employer. And that was quite key to that decision. The second point was that at the time of the reorganisation, that was done on the 
basis that there wouldn't be any change to members' benefits. And if Mitchells and Butler could now prevent rectification of the rules, that would have the effect of amending members' benefits. So do you think this defence we're likely to see in future cases, or do you think that's the last we've seen of it? Well, as I say, it was novel, but it does seem to have been dismissed fairly categorically by the judge in this case. So that's not to say it wouldn't succeed on different facts, but the impression we take from the judgment is that that would be potentially an uphill struggle because the judge dealt with it quite comprehensively in the judgment. The other aspect of the judgment that's received a lot of attention relates to the requirements around consulting with scheme actuaries, where that's required by the rules of a scheme or where trustees need to get an actuarial certificate before they can make any changes to their rules. Could you just explain a bit about what the judge had to say about that? Sure. So, as you say, this came up because the power of amendment in the scheme rules requires the trustees to consult with the actuary before making any changes. And the trustee argued, well, the relevant documentation has not been considered properly by the actuary, unsurprisingly, given that it was never the intention for a change to be made. And so the amendment is ineffective. And so the judge considered that argument. Has there been proper consultation by the actuary such that this could be an effective change? And he decided that that wasn't the case. And so he looks in quite a lot of detail at what is required by um, a requirement for consultation. And importantly, it's not sufficient, he says, for materials simply to be sent to an actuary, presented to an actuary. The relevant changes have to be drawn to his or her attention. And so where we find ourselves is simply presenting a consolidated set of scheme rules to the actuary and asking the actuary to sign off on it will likely be insufficient. And any changes that are intended to be made need to be specifically drawn to their attention and consideration to those changes given by the actuary. And I think the important thing is being able to evidence that to avoid circumstances in the future where an intended amendment might be challenged. Yeah, so that sounds like some important commentary there around the effectiveness or or what effective consultation means. Do do you think it's an issue, again, that's likely to crop up in in future cases? I I think it could well do. I I think it has obviously an impact going forward in terms of what practitioners will be doing for amendments going forward. But also the case has shone quite a specific light on this issue. And so what we might see is it being considered in the context of historic changes. That's not to say this decision, it doesn't change the law, but it simply shines a bit of a spotlight on it. And what that could mean is that the issue gets more attention in relation to historic amendments that are being looked at for various reasons. And I think also it will be something that practitioners will want to keep in mind when, for example, looking at due diligence reports, carrying out due diligence exercises. Great. Thanks, Antonio. And thanks for taking us through kind of key elements of of this particular decision. Thank you to everyone who's listened to this podcast. As I say, it's first in our new series on pension disputes developments. So if you haven't already, subscribe to our blog and you will receive future episodes. Thanks for listening.